From the Financial Times in London, I'm Andrew Jack, and this is FT News. Nearly half of the world's population is at risk of malaria, and despite great strides in fighting the disease, it still kills hundreds of thousands of people every year. Global health leaders are gathered in London this week for the World Malaria Summit, time to coincide with the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. They're seeking to refocus attention on malaria amid fears that flat global funding and the emergence of drug and insecticide resistance could halt or even reverse progress in fighting the disease. So what can be done? I'm joined in the studio to discuss the issues by Charles Nelson and Prudence Hamadi of the Malaria Consortium, who are attending the Malaria Summit this week, and Alistair Craig from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Alistair, let's start with you in Liverpool. If you were standing in front of the Commonwealth leaders, what would your message be? I think it would be to try and reinforce that we're not there yet, and we're not there yet across the board. So we don't have all the tools for the interventions to put into the field and in the clinics, and we don't have all the knowledge to try and develop the new interventions. If you were focusing on, for example, the innovation case, the science, what more in particular needs to be done there? Well, I think we've got two fronts that we need to address. And one sort of comes under the banner of resistance. And of course, people have heard about this in terms of antimicrobial resistance and antibiotics. But we suffer the same fate in dealing with antiparasite treatments. So the malaria drugs that we have are wonderful and are very effective. But at some stage, they will become no longer effective. And we need to have new drugs to be able to bring in when that happens. And on the other part of that is we have insecticide resistance coming in. So all the studies have shown that actually the big gains that we've had over the last few years have been in terms of controlling vector populations. But the tools we have to do that are starting to fail already. And it takes quite a lot of time to bring in the new compounds that will do that work. And so we need to really push on that. So resistance is one of the fronts that we need to work on. And then the other one is that we could really do with a more effective vaccine. It's great that we've got RTSS as a vaccine, which shows some efficacy, but we'd really like to have something which works a bit better. So Prudence, you're working on the ground with the Malaria Consortium in a lot of the high burden countries. Does that resonate? What are you seeing in terms of that threat of resistance? That is exactly right. He's defined very clearly what is needed to really combat malaria. We do need to use the old tools, however, more effectively. And we do need to know more about exactly where malaria is and how it's distributed and which particular groups are affected so that we can direct our interventions more clearly. What's not being used adequately amongst the existing tools then? Well, for example, if we look at bed net coverage, it's still quite low in many countries and utilisation of bed nets is even lower. The access to effective treatment for real malaria cases is also lower. Presumptive malaria is still very common in many African countries particularly. So we need better trained health workers who actually diagnose malaria before treating them with the medicines we have at the moment, which are very effective. So Charles, tell us just a little bit more about the Malaria Consortium and its role, both in operational terms and advocacy. Malaria Consortium is an organisation that was established originally actually out of a DFID resource centre and it was there to support the thinking on how best to invest in improving infectious disease control, but particularly malaria. The consortium was originally actually between London and Liverpool schools of hygiene and tropical medicine, but it became an NGO in around 2004. 
And we've continued then to implement in certain countries around the world, looking to build evidence in the field for what actually works and to ensure that money is well spent and best targeted based on the evidence that is available. And then we've widened into other diseases than just malaria, because when you're presented with fever and it's not malaria, you don't want to send particularly febrile children away without having done something for them. In the field where access to health facilities is difficult, we work with integrated community case management for children under the age of five and try to target pregnant women who are also particularly vulnerable to malaria and other diseases. Treatment actually in the village by community health workers does work. Some countries allow community health workers to treat with antibiotics, some don't, and they require a referral. We also look at oral rehydration therapy for diarrhoea and where we can nutrition. That means that it's very rapid treatment, which is also more effective, and it saves many cases, too, of the more severe malaria, which is what results in the deaths. Alistair, just coming back to you, the Liverpool School, of course, has been very involved in new generation insecticides, hasn't it? How important and how close are we to being able to use those to push back against resistance by mosquitoes? Well, I think we've already heard that actually using the things that you have in better ways, implementing their use on bed nets, in specific areas so we can now track mosquitoes and see where they're actually landing so we can increase the amount of insecticide in those areas. We can combine them in different ways so that we try to get better efficacy about what we have already. And then yes, there are new compounds coming through, but of course these will be used in the environment. So testing and looking for safety is really very important. So they won't be ready tomorrow, but there is a pipeline of new compounds that are coming through and they should be available in the next three to four years. What are you learning about where specifically mosquitoes are landing? Is there some new sort of, as it were, behavioural findings that are having implications for spraying and bed net placing and usage? It's the outcome of actually working across disciplines. So if you get cameramen and engineers and vector biologists together, they can design cameras that can track mosquitoes individually flying through the air and landing around someone sleeping on a net. And what you see is that there are particular focus areas where they will land when someone is sleeping on a net. And therefore, what you can actually do is you can put higher concentrations of the compound on that area and that means that the main area of the net which might be in contact with people will have lower concentrations and therefore be less toxic in that way so you can have greater efficacy without greater risk and where do they land nearer the top then nearer where it's on the top above yes i mean basically where you breathe they like carbon dioxide so they use various tracking when they come into the room to find someone but when they get close they use heat and co2 I think it's also important to realise that mosquitoes do change their behaviour and in certain areas, particularly in Asia, they don't bite inside the house. So we have to look at other innovations besides new insecticides and that will include perhaps infecting the mosquitoes with a Wolbachia bacteria which stops the malaria parasite developing within the mosquito, releasing genetically modified male mosquitoes so they can't breed and there are other interesting innovations that are being developed and we're hoping to trial some of them. We actually need to know what mosquitoes do and I think entomology has been a rather neglected area of malaria control. It's also, as has been said, important to understand the patterns of disease and the patterns of transmission because we're going to open up windows where these treatments will work. So we have to understand in different contexts how disease is being transmitted and maybe where these interventions will be more favourable, such as being able to give them just before a transmission season, you can have a much bigger effect without having to time it across the whole year. So it's about the combination of knowledge 
and having the right people to put that information together because it is quite complicated, but there are some relatively easy wins that we can get. That brings me to the point that making sure that we're targeting our interventions in the right place is the most important thing to happen in the next five years. And I think that the HMIS systems need to be improved, health the, surveillance, information the, the health management mm. information systems, because they are not very good at the moment, shall we say. And I think that the concentration in countries like Nigeria, for example, where we have been working with the National Malaria Control Programme very closely, we really don't know exactly where malaria is occurring. We don't know how the mosquitoes are behaving. And in order to really be cost effective in our interventions, we need to have better surveillance. And Charles, we've talked about lots of investment and innovation and so on. But on the other side, and looking at the most recent World Malaria Report, there seems to have been a plateauing or even a little bit of tailing off, hasn't there, of momentum and funding and results. So how concerned are you about continued slowdown, really, in progress? Well, I think it's a very fair question in the sense that it does seem to be that we're maintaining a kind of level of investment. It's tailed slightly. But the reality is many of the new innovations do come at a cost, and it's a cost in excess of the current tools. So with a flat budget and an increased price, you get less interventions for your money, understandably in many respects, but of course it is concerning. But if you can combine that with appropriate targeting of the right interventions in the right places and only use the more expensive tools where they make significant difference, it should still be possible to continue to implement. But, you know, one of the things that we at Malaria Consortium are very keen to do is continue to promote this notion that you have to have really good data, really good surveillance, so you can respond to outbreaks, so you can respond to hotspots of transmission, rather than necessarily a blanket everywhere of everything, we need to be able to do that. Alistair, if there was a finite pool of resources, as it were, would you see the case for any reallocation between the existing buckets around malaria to really deliver more results? Gosh, that's a really difficult question because really the answer is not to stop funding too early. Malaria will come back if we make the mistake of thinking we've won too soon. I think what we can do is use the money sometimes more effectively to get us across the translational dead space where new things are coming out and not just drugs and diagnostics but new policies and encouraging that research to see what works and what doesn't work so that we can actually see on an evidence basis what is going to have an impact and I think those types of areas of research are less attractive to certain researchers and yet they're so important to be able to provide the new information that we desperately need if we're going to win this battle. So given the challenge of funding, and of course, as we've discussed, this very cunning ability of the mosquito, the parasite, to adapt over time, do you think these growing calls or even timetables for elimination and a shift towards eradication are realistic? They're ambitious. I think in some areas that they may be possible. I think in some of the more higher transmission and harder to reach areas, they will be difficult to achieve in part because we know that you get sort of micro environments of transmission and those are hard to track and hard to know where they are and yet they can reseed disease very easily if you have a rainy season and you have the spread of mosquitoes. So I think we will get very close but I think the actual end game as we've seen with some of the neglected tropical diseases is very hard to manage and isn't a quick fix.
Prudence, you're optimistic? I, I am optimistic. We've spent a lot of money and time and effort looking at new tools and innovations, which are all needed, and especially a vaccine would be very useful. But I think unless we engage communities and the general population in the effort to eliminate malaria and the idea that it's possible to eliminate malaria, then it won't happen. Yes, Charles, there's obviously a need for a lot of countries that are high burden but are becoming more middle income to invest more themselves in this. Do you think there's really a need for them to take the lead much more than they have to date? I think every sovereign government has to take responsibility for the health of its people and where they can afford to do so, they should do so. I think we should be pretty positive about the notion of eliminating mortality from malaria. I don't think anybody should die from malaria and the tools exist to do that and to support that with a very few exceptions. And clearly the target to eliminate mortality is there and should be achievable within the timeframes. I think elimination of morbidity in all cases is probably ambitious, as Alice has suggested. The governments themselves, they have a hard task. You know, they are being asked to put resources to health generally, to building the system, to building the capacity of their own systems. And whilst they can get funding in from external sources to support that, they will clearly continue to do that. But absolutely, the transition away from the traditional funding sources to domestic financing and the country's taking responsibility has to come, and it has to come as quickly as it can. And there are some cases where that is happening. Give us a sense of the economic costs, actually, of malaria. Sure, there have been many sort of global studies looking at the impact that malaria has, and numbers around $30 billion a year have been put out there as to the economic cost. I think that for individual countries, this question of what would their health system look like if they could be deburdened from malaria, which can be up to sort of 60% of all cases presenting in clinics of largely childhood malaria, are a huge burden on the system. And the system itself then doesn't have the opportunity and chance to grow. And then, of course, outside that direct health cost, you've got the impact of people who have to take time off work to look after their children who come out of schools. There's a whole series of broader costs. Also, malaria mainly affects children under five and children under five who are constantly ill become malnourished because of constant illness and who are very anemic. Their development is affected and it's been proven by World Bank latest document that loss of children's ability to learn is a very important factor for the development of the country. So there's certainly an enormous amount of momentum this week. We've got the heads of government. We've got this malaria summit. There's a separate big scientific meeting, MIM taking place as well at the same time, all in the build-up to World Malaria Day. A reminder also that the Financial Times has just published its latest malaria report, which is available online as well as in print. Thank you all three for contributing and thanks for listening. <laughs>